I, I think the danger is sometimes we're looking for into the nooks and crannies for the connection to Christ, and so we miss the big picture. Um, Jim Elliott, one of those five missionaries who was massacred by the Alka Indians back in the 1970s. In his journal, he writes, you know, I was reading about the boards and, and curtains of the tabernacle, and I just don't get it. I'm not spiritual enough to see Christ in this. Uh, and, and he was really beating himself up as being unspiritual, whereas the problem was the kind of preaching that he was used to. You know, he was used to listening to preaching where people produce this magic Jesus out of a, out of a rabbit's hat, uh, and uh, he could he couldn't do that. And the reason he couldn't do that is because he was looking in the wrong place. Uh, you know, the tabernacle does point us richly to Christ, but it's in the big picture. Uh, it's not in all of the micro details. Hi, everybody! Welcome to the Gary Wilson Podcast. So glad you're here with us today. Uh, I know you're going to want to stay tuned for this because. You're listening to this podcast because there's a desire in your heart to know Christ, to love Christ, to have the revelation of who he is made known. And there's this whole portion of scripture, the Old Testament, as we call it, that oftentimes uh, is relegated to history or some other aspects. And sometimes we miss the preciousness of Christ being present in every single word of the scripture. So uh, we have with us today uh, Professor Ian Duguid, and uh, he he is from... Uh, uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. He's a graduate of Cambridge University and is a professor of Old Testament there. And uh, we've, we have some friends from our ministry that have studied under you there. I, uh, we won't go into that, but uh, they just love your teaching and your writing. And we're honored to have you with us today. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So we're going to just dive right in. Uh, Christ in the Old Testament. This is something that's dear to your heart. Could you just give us a short overview of what we mean when we're talking about Christ in the Old Testament? Yeah, well, there are lots of things we could mean. We could mean prophecy, explicit prophecies about Jesus, and there are certainly those. We could mean uh, appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ to Old Testament characters, and there are some who fit that character but uh, what I talk about when I talk about Christ the Old Testament is much more than that. Uh, it's the fact that the whole story of the Old Testament anticipates, leads up to, directs us uh, towards the coming of Christ and provides the context out of which we really can't understand fully what it is Christ has come to do for us. And I would argue that that's the way that Jesus himself teaches us to read the Old Testament. Yeah. What are some other ways uh, we as Christians might read the Old Testament at the exclusion of seeing Christ in the Old Testament? Would it be like history or what? Yeah, well, yeah, we could read it as boring old history, okay. right? <laughs> Dull facts about people who are long dead. <laughs> you know, and they're all, they're all men. There's no women. And, uh, you know, uh, that's one way. Or uh, very commonly, we read them as, as moral stories. So David and Goliath becomes a message about how you need to take on the giants in your life. Um and, uh, yeah, I remember hearing a sermon in which the preacher told us what the five smooth stones were, you know, and they were five virtues that David took with him to tackle the giants in his life. And, yeah, that's that's law. Um, even if it's good law, it's law, and it doesn't really connect us with the, the grand narrative of Scripture and what God is preparing for throughout the Old Testament. You're absolutely right. It's, it's law, and it's also... Um... I think it's oftentimes used in modern church situations at times as almost like pop psychology. Uh, David was brave. You can be brave. Uh, it's that you can do it kind of mentality using all these um, 
biblical heroes, not pointing to you know attributes of God or Christ, but pointing to things that they they have that you could have, you know. Right. Well, of course, this is how stories work. Stories draw us in by inviting us to to identify with the characters. Hmm. Uh, the problem with the David and Goliath story is we're identifying with the wrong character. Uh, we're not David in this story. We're Israel standing on the sidelines, too afraid to actually take <laughs> on any, any giants, uh, needing a champion to come and win the victory on our behalf, which, of course, is exactly what Christ is going to come and do. Wow. That and that changes the whole trajectory of what we're reading, it, it the Christocentricness of it rather than the self-centeredness of of a study. It really does, and it leaves leaves our hearts really moved to to praise. Wow! Uh, I think that's that's my you know my chief goal when when I preach is not to get people to do new stuff. It's to leave people dazzled with the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ in all of its richness and fullness. If people get that, then they can start to figure out, okay, so how do I live my life differently tomorrow on the basis of it? You know, and that's often the second half of Paul's letters, right? He, he moves on to that part, but he always starts out dazzling us with the beauty of the gospel and the glory of Christ, because if we don't get that, then not only will we not succeed in, in the moral uh, in, in obeying the moral imperatives, but we'll completely miss the point. Even to the extent that we do exceed, we'll, uh, succeed, we'll miss the point of why God gave us those instructions. Yeah, that's powerful. I love how you talk about that, the, just to see the glory of Christ, and then that changes our behavior, changes rather than starting with behavior modification and hoping to get to praise. Well, it does. Yeah, the the old Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers preached a sermon once called "The Expulsive Power of a New Affection." Yeah, I've read that. Um, and in it, he—I mean, it's—it's—he's it, 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 describing the way in which love changes us in a way that the law can't. And I—I I, I used to teach at an undergraduate college, and I could see this lived out in front of me. You know, you'd see these kids—you know—you see a, a, a young man dressed in shabby jeans, and you know, he'd rolled out of bed, headed off to class. Uh, he's just a mess. And then, you know, a week later, you'd see the same guy and now he's dressed in, you know, chinos and a polo shirt and, you know, he's combed his hair and uh, he walks past, you get a whiff of cologne and you think, what happened to this young man? Well, the answer is a girl happened. Uh, and, <laughs> and, you know, his mom has been on him for the last five years saying, I want grandkids. I'll never get grandkids unless you shape up. And it has had zero impact on his life. But as soon as he's in love, now all of a sudden, the only question in his mind is, how can I impress this person I'm so in love with? How, how, can, I, how can I please them? How can I, how can I delight them? And of course, that's exactly the same with, with us and God. That As we begin to grasp the gospel, that's where the motivating power begins to come from to desire to live a holy life. Mm. I'm so glad you went there. That's very precious to have our friends hear that. Um, when we're looking at Christ in the Old Testament, um, you know, you t- obviously you, t- you teach a you know se- a seminary degree course, so a lot of our listeners, you know, may not be able to grasp all that you're able to uh, communicate to your students. But just if you were to give us a, a a short starters course on, okay, I take my Bible and I say, okay, I've got you know I've got stories. You mentioned David. I've got Moses and. I've got a lot of laws and stuff and rules and stories of wars. Uh, I don't know how I see Christ in that. How how would you get us started right. to look for Christ in that? 
Yeah, so the, the heroes of the Old Testament always are a, are a way of pointing us forward to Christ. Not always in terms of similarity, sometimes in terms of differences. I think sometimes we make the mistake of trying to find all of the ways in which this Old Testament character is like Christ, uh, when sometimes the key significance is the differences, hmm. like Samson, for example. I mean, there are some significant ways in which Samson is like Christ. You know, there's a special announcement of his birth and he wins his greatest victory through his death. Um, but the more you look at Samson, the more you see this is not like Jesus. You know, he's, he's all about himself and his own interests and his own concerns. Uh, and even when he wins a victory, it's really out of his own revenge rather than a real desire to bless God's people. And nobody is delivered by his victory. You know, by his stripes, we are not healed. Uh, and that prepares you then to see the glory of Christ because he's a very different kind of leader. You know, the judges uh, have this progressive downward spiral and, you know, they, they get worse and worse and worse, like Israel. Uh, and they show us more and more our need for a, a leader who's not like them. Uh, and so, you, you know, you compare and contrast uh, the leaders of the Old Testament to, uh, to Christ. And then the Old Testament is full of law. Uh, any law is designed to convict us of our sins. Uh, so as we go through the laws of the Old Testament, we should be asking, how does this show me how I fail to live up to the kind of person I ought to be? Well, in exactly the same way, it will point us to Christ as the one who's fulfilled that law. Because Christ has perfectly fulfilled not just the law in general, but that specific law in my place. Uh, and, and that's the good news of the gospel, is that when God looks at me in Christ, he sees me as if I fulfilled that law in the way that Christ had. And then we can go and ask, ask the next question, which is, okay, so how would my life be different if I really believe this? Mm. What, what would I do differently? How would I think differently? How would I behave differently? And then we come back again to Christ and we say, even though I know I'm going to blow it again next week, the gospel's still true. The righteousness of Christ is still uh, given to me, apart from, a righteousness apart from the law through faith in Christ that means there is now no condemnation for me along with all those who are in Christ Jesus. So that, those are a couple of ways to start us off. Yeah, beautiful. I love that start. And you know, for, for me, just a, just a short uh, testimony. My own life is when I was a young Christian, I used to sort of look at the, you know, the Deuteronomy passage of, of the blessings and the curses and kind of say, okay, if, if, I, if I could really work hard to obey, then I'll get these blessings. Mm. But if I don't, I'm really scared. I live in a lot of fear. I, I'm going to get all these curses. But when I saw, just as you're talking today, Christ is the fulfillment of that law. He's, he's also the fulfillment of the blessings and the curses. All those curses were put upon him at the cross. And, uh, you know, I don't, right. I don't, I can certainly still, there's still discipline in the Christian life and correction, but there's no wrath of God uh, left right. for me. And so, it, uh, so it moves us out of fear. It's a, so there's, there's so much there. And that's particularly true as we grow as Christians. You know, sometimes, uh, and John Newton, uh, the slave trader turned pastor pointed this out, but very young Christians, God treats as babies. And so he's, he's, he's very kind to us. He gives us often uh, dramatic victory over our sin. And, and we think we have it all figured out. Um, you know, Newton calls these type A Christians and, <laughs> and, and you come across them everywhere. They're the people who, whenever you confess your struggle with sin to them, they have five tips as to how you can beat mm -hmm. it. Uh, and it worked for them. Mm. It worked for them because God was gracious enough to deliver them from that sin. 
Uh, but Newton argues that as, as we mature as Christians, God steps back from us a little bit and allows us to experience the power of our sinful nature more, to fall into sin more often. Uh, because the result of that is that we become less confident in ourselves, less proud, uh, less judgmental of others, uh, and more dependent upon his Holy Spirit, more appreciative of the gospel. Uh, and so that's the point where we start to become really appreciative of the righteousness of Christ given to us. Yeah, it humbles us, doesn't it? It brings us to our knees and just say, man, thank you, Jesus, for all you've done for us. The things you're talking about with the uh, heroes, the law, um, is there a way to uh, discern it correctly? So so you're reading the law, like, uh, what would you recommend? Are there certain books? I know you write a lot on this and have some teachings on that. Uh, what could you point us to to help us making sure we're not uh, in error of going, like like you said, the five stones of David or, or these things? Do you have some guidance for us there? Yes. I mean, you know, I think this— uh, there's a number of books out there. Um, uh, Graham Goldsworthy has written a number of helpful books on this topic. Uh, Dennis Johnson has written a number of helpful books. And uh, I have a very little book uh, called Is Jesus in the Old Testament, uh, which will, you know, will help people get started out. Um, I, I think the danger is sometimes we're looking for into the nooks and crannies for the connection to Christ. And so we miss the big picture. Hmm. Um Jim Elliott, one of those five missionaries who was massacred by the Alka Indians back in the 1970s. I mean, he was a very intense Christian. I mean, he would have been the college roommate from hell. You know, <laughs> Friday night, you want to kick back and go, you know, go to the party. And he's, he's out going, you know, taking a train to Chicago so he can witness. He's taking up wrestling so he can control his body. But in his journal, he writes, you know, I was reading about the boards and, t- and curtains of the tabernacle and I just don't get it. I'm not spiritual enough to see Christ in this. Uh, and, and he was really beating himself up as being unspiritual, whereas the problem was the kind of preaching that he was used to. You know, he was used to listening to preaching where people produce this magic Jesus out of a, out of a rabbit's hat. Uh, and uh, he, could, he couldn't do that. And the reason he couldn't do that is because he was looking in the wrong place. Uh, you know, the tabernacle does point as richly to Christ, but it's in the big picture. Uh, it's not in all of the micro details. Uh, and so I think you know, that's a safer place to be looking uh, for those connections. Wow. Uh, on a personal level, what got you interested? I know a lot of your teaching and ministry is, is uh, helping people see this Christ in the Old Testament. What got you interested in that? What, what stirred your heart? Why do you like that as opposed to New Testament, for instance? Yeah, so I was I was hooked from the day I sat in the basement here at Westminster when I was in seminary here and heard my first sermon by Edmund Clowney. Uh, it's a sermon on Psalm 90, and it's an amazing exposition of, of Christ in the Old Testament. And I said to myself, when I grow up, I, I, I want to preach like this. I, I, I want to be able to show people this. Uh, and uh, so... Yeah, I had some great models when I was in seminary here. Uh, you know, Tim Keller was one of my professors, who's a, a marvelous model of, of recognizing Christ in all scripture. Um, what I didn't have was people actually helping me with the nuts and bolts of how do you get from text to Christ in an appropriate way. And so in my classes, I've, I've spent a lot of time working on that. And someday I hope to write that up uh, to give people more help as to how to get from 
particularly different genres of scripture to Christ, because I think each has their own uh, particular way of getting to Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, there's, there's been a, a, a real movement in that direction. It was quite, it was much less familiar to people 40 years ago when I was in seminary. I think it's become more familiar now to people. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, that's, that's where I got hooked. Yeah, I could see why you would. And wasn't there a, um, a conference? I don't know if it was like Together for the Gospel or Desiring God. Wasn't there a conference about preaching Christ from the Old Testament? Are you familiar with that at all? I think Tim Keller might have been there. And Yeah, there have been, been a number. Um, and uh, yeah, there's, there's also a, a, a course that, uh, on RTS's iTunes site that has Tim Keller and Ed Clowney together teaching that class. I mean, which is, it's just an amazing combination. I'm so glad that somebody recorded that. Uh, it's audio, it's not video, but it's, it's, it's just an amazing resource. Well, yeah, we'll put that in the, uh, we call the show notes, the little th- things underneath the YouTube right. that you can find out for some more information. We'll put that in there as well, as, as well as your books as well. Uh, you mentioned Psalm 90. Can we take a, a little bit of a turn here and, and look at Christ specifically in the Psalms? Uh, I'm doing a teaching series now, uh, expository teaching uh, through all, all the all the chapters of Psalms, we're only in chapter twenty, and um, I just I did a little bit of math, and uh, it's going to be like you know the summer of twenty twenty six, Lord willing, that that will get finished. So it just I I didn't I forgot it's such a big book. I'm biting off here to to do a mm-hmm. one week at a time, uh, chapter by chapter, uh, but. Uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely seeing Christ in the Psalms as we do, but sometimes I get a little thrown off as I look at the commentaries. You know, some of them will say, you know, this chapter is, you know, Christ speaking, and I don't know how they got that. Or this 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 chapter is David saying this, but he's actually prophesying that Christ would would do that. Uh, tell us a little bit about how we might see specifically Christ Jesus in the Psalms. Yeah, I think the simplest way to think about this, and I got this from Ed Clowney, uh, is is to, to think about Christ singing the Psalms in, in three different ways. Uh, first, Christ singing the Psalms as the representative singer. Uh, and, and, and that's those Psalms where uh, we find our own experience in the Psalms. You know, as we read the Psalms, you think, boy, that sounds like the trouble I'm experiencing. Right? I mean, this is why people turn to the Psalms. Uh, they're in pain, they're in suffering. Where do you go? Well, the Psalms uh, obviously are a place to go. Why is that? Well, because the psalmist has suffered in many ways like we've suffered. Um, but not only the psalmist, Christ has suffered in many ways the same way that we have suffered. So it adds a whole new dimension to think about this as a psalm that Christ would have sung. Uh, I mean, you know, the uh, and uh, to think about him having shared our sufferings, you know, the Hebrews notation of Jesus as our merciful and compassionate high priest who's been tempted in every way just as we are. You know, he suffered as we have uh, in order to be able to fulfill that role of interceding for us. And so he knows what, what you're going through because he suffered it himself and, and he is now at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. And so that dimension uh, is, is, is sort of the first layer. Um, but then the second layer is Christ as the supreme singer of the Psalms. You know, there are some Psalms that even when David is saying them, it feels too big for him, yeah. you know, like a child playing dress up. <laughs> um, the, you know, the, there's, there's a level on which da- th- these things are true of David, but it, it's sort of hyperbolic language. You know, 
enemies on every side. Everybody in the world is against me. Um, and you think that's surely hyperbole for David, but for Christ, it's not. You know, when you think about the depth of his sufferings on the cross, uh, there are ways in which the Psalms point forward to Christ uh, it, that they, they weren't completely true for David. Yeah, Psalm 22 is the classic example. Um, it, it, it looks so much like a description of a crucifixion. Obviously, David was not crucified, but he felt like he was. You know, it was sort of a hyperbolic language for himself, but it becomes actually true in the case of Jesus. Um, or uh, David says in Psalm 69, zeal for your house has consumed me. Well, yeah, David was passionate about preparing the way for Solomon to have the materials for a temple to be built, but nothing like the zeal for God's house that consumes Christ, that takes him to the cross. Um, and then the third aspect is, is Jesus, the returning singer of the Psalms. You know, the Psalms are always looking forward there's aspects of the Psalms that, that, that demand there's more to life than life. You know, Psalm 1 um, is not true of our experience. And it's not true of Jesus' experience if this life is all that there is. You know, if, if, it, if, if Jesus is a marker of what it means to be the righteous man, then he should be blessed. He should be the one who is flourishing like a green tree planted beside the waters. And instead, what do we see? He's Isaiah 53. He's the root out of dry ground. Uh, he has no glory. He has no beauty. He has no majesty that we should desire him. Instead, he's like the chaff, uh, the dried up, thrown away leftovers, uh, because he's under the judgment of God for us. He's experiencing that for us. And so Jesus takes the fate of the chaff in order that we might experience the blessing of the fruitful tree that is planted beside the waters, which takes you immediately to Revelation 22. Uh, you have the, you know, you have the, the, the tree, tree of life planted beside the water whose leaf is for the healing of the nations. Uh, that's actually an Ezekiel 47 connection in the middle there, uh, where you have a river that comes out of the, the, the uh, visionary temple there, which picks up that language of Psalm, Psalm 1 and connects it directly to Revelation 22. Um, you know, that anticipation there of uh, this glorious future in which blessing comes upon God's people, you know, you need the whole of the story in order to, uh, for that to make sense. Uh, there are so many scholars who think the Old Testament believers don't have any faith in the resurrection. I cannot understand that. Mm -hmm. You know, the Old Testament does not make sense if there is not something more than this life. Jesus pointed out, you know, God is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if, if death is the end of the story. Yeah. Uh, there has to be something more than that. Yeah. Uh, Psalm 1 demands there has to be more than that because we know in our own experience that you know, righteous people don't always live good lives. They, they often are su suffering and persecuted. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. From from Enoch to the prophets, you know, the the minor prophets, even there was always a sense of maybe uncertain at times and unclear at times, but certainly there's a real sense of there's something more than than temporal earth. Uh, that that uh, <clears throat> um, the um, so do you, do you believe that David when he was writing these things or or some of the other Asaph and others who wrote some of the Psalms. When they were 
writing something that had a dual nature. They were talking about themselves and their own experience, but they were talking about Christ as well. Did they have some kind of hint about that at all, do you believe? That's a great question. Um, well, let's start with what, what the scripture talks about, which is Abraham. Um, Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Yeah. Uh, now, what was it that Abraham saw? I mean, he, you know, he, 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 it's one of those things that I'm sure during his 40-day period with the disciples after the resurrection, maybe that's one of the things he, took, he unpacked, showing them Christ and the, the, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Um, but that's got to be at least Genesis 22, uh, when Abraham goes and offers Isaac and God provides the ram at Isaac's place, Jesus is saying on some level, Abraham got it. And, and he understood that this is pointing forward to something that God is going to do yeah. profoundly. Um, how much did Abraham know? I don't know. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't think he had a clear, you know, he didn't have a new Testament, <laughs> you know, he didn't have the whole story. Um, but he saw enough to know that you know, that God is up to something here. Yeah, there are times when David um, must have felt, you know, this I, this is not just me writing stuff down here. This is God speaking through me, and uh, this feels bigger than just my experience. Yeah. Um, again, how far does that go? I don't know, but uh, uh, probably further than than we might think. I get excited thinking about that—that that they knew more than we think they know. I think there's something sweet about that, that that Christ would be revealing himself. You know, you mentioned earlier how, how he revealed himself in the Old Testament, through whether it be through Theophanies or through Revelation. Um, but the fact that his presence was there and they, they had some, that's what the Hebrews 11 passage really is about, that they were looking forward to something. Uh, they, they knew they were looking for a different kind of city and a, a different kind of king over the city. And so right. they uh, they, right. they certainly had some realities there, didn't they? Yeah. Now, at the same time, you, you have to go to Daniel, and Daniel often doesn't understand the visions that he's given. Mm. So it's not necessary <laughs> right. for the Old Testament saying to understand everything that's going on here. Sometimes they're just taking stuff down, and uh, you know it's not completely clear to them. Um, you know the the detailed precision of Daniel's visions, for example. Um, I mean. The detail is important in Daniel's context because it shows that God is the God of details, not just the big picture. Um, but uh, Daniel could not possibly have known just how precisely uh, those prophecies would be fulfilled. These things were written for our account, you know. So he may not have seen them Absolutely. all, but we get to see it from from that uh, looking back. Is a little, it's, you know, in life, it's always which again, you know ought to blow our minds. Yeah. We know more about what God is doing in the world than Daniel did. I mean, if that if that doesn't humble you and make you feel like, Lord, you've been so good to us and you know, and, and treasure our scriptures, I, I don't know what would. Yeah, uh, that's really a good point. I I never thought of that before you but but that's spot on, just the idea of uh, you know, we look at some of these heroes and just say, boy, I wish I could have had what they had, but uh we need to understand and be thankful, not not haughty, but thankful and humbled at what he has given us in Revelation. Yeah, and the way that the, the average high school student now knows more about physics than Isaac Newton did. Wow. Not because they're smarter than Newton, they certainly aren't, but yeah. because they're standing on the shoulders of so many who've gone before, who've made these discoveries. Um, now, how much more in our case, because we're living in the in the age of, of the fullness of Revelation uh, through the scriptures, Although we still await 
you know, the the revelation, the fullest revelation, which is when Christ returns, yeah. and all of these things that are still obscure to us, mm-hmm. and right, you know, w- will be obscure until Christ returns. Yeah. Um, then, then we will we will see. Yeah, I've often thought about that. You know how, you know, the you know when the the Jews were thinking about the Messiah to come, you know, as much revelation as they had, they got it wrong. Sometimes I get nervous about that myself. It's like we have all this New Testament revelation. We have the Holy Spirit should illuminate that to us. But still is like, you know, is the second coming going to be like what we think it is? Is the is heaven exactly the way? We- yeah, again, we, we shouldn't overstate that. They they got some things right, right? They they, they knew where to send Herod to look for a baby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, so, and so, there were, yeah. you know, there were certain things that were, were, were plain and obvious to everybody yeah. in your hypothetical prophecy conference in the year 100 BC. <laughs> there were a lot of things, though, as you say, that, that they would have got wrong. Yeah. Um, I, I would suggest including the fact that God was going to take flesh and come mm-hmm. to live among us. I mean, even though they had Isaiah 7, 14, um, that would have been a very controversial interpretation at that point, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, as you say, that should give us uh, you know, humility as we interpret prophecies for the future yeah uh there are some things that we can absolutely be confident about when jesus yeah. comes back you are not going to miss it yeah um every eye will see every you know every knee will bow yeah um but equally there will be things that will come come and they will be more literal than some people thought mm-hmm. um because yeah just as as some of those old testament prophecies were more literally fulfilled than people would have thought yeah. there will be some that'll be fulfilled in ways you think boy I did not see that coming. Uh, it's a fulfillment, absolutely, but that was not how I thought that would be fulfilled. Yeah. Uh, and God will say, "Yeah, that, I'm God. You're not. I, you know, I get to decide these things." Right. Uh, so that should that should give us humility and patience with Christians who have different views about how these things will unfold. And speaking about things unfolding and different views, that's a there's a plethora of those views around uh, and. Uh, you know, as long as we yes, are, are, are uh, you know, hold to the basic tenets of faith, we can be one in Christ, based not based on our particular view of the millennial or the rapture or things like that. You know, the or the tribulation. Absolutely, and and I always find it helpful to ask, you know, what what are my brothers in Christ trying to defend biblically with their view? Um, because almost always there's some biblical truth that that they feel is really important that their view preserves yeah uh, and 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 it may be that i can still affirm that with my view but it's it's helpful for me to ask what, what is it that's that's really encouraging and driving this view yeah. in the scriptures uh and am i doing justice to that within my own view that's a good point uh if you don't mind switching gears just one more time i don't know how much time you have with us but if, if you could give us another 10 minutes i'd love it uh, sure switch gears and talk about another one of your books talking about the uh, armor of god and i know that's quite a departure from christ in the old testament in some ways but in other ways not uh but that uh uh, we were talking just before we started the show one of my favorite books is william grinnell's uh, christian complete armor and um uh, but uh, you know, certainly that's a—it's not a sort of not a devotional book or not a book you'd read in a afternoon setting. It's a well, when when he said complete armor, he meant complete <laughs> armor. It's like six hundred pages of tiny, tiny print. Yeah. Um, I mean, those were his Sunday afternoon sermons for several years. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so it, it it's it's exhausting and exhaustive. It's it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, 
but it's it, there's a lot in there. <laughs> yes. I, I tell you, there's something about the writers of that era that they could break, you know, they could take one verse and spend, you know, hundreds of pages on it, but not bore you. I mean, it's like, you know, sometimes, right. you know, I mean, you can, it's like a big meal. You, you know, you have to stop after a while, but it's, it's not like uh, right. dull or lifeless or re- redundant. It, it's, I can't, you know, it's like they like, write like a, you know, 100 points about what the shield is. Uh, it's like, how, I mean, right. how, do you, how do you get that? It's incredible. But you, you've given yourself to yeah, study. Yeah, well, on... often what they're, do, what they're doing is they're drawing on everything the Bible teaches you on the subject of shields, for example. Uh, and so so it's it, it's really a, a kind of miniature systematic theology. Ah, yeah. That's whereby the text, the text, because yeah, the text is sort of like a hyperlink in our terms. You know, when you go on the internet, you click a hyperlink and a whole new page opens up. Uh, so very often for the Puritans, the texts are like hyperlinks. And so they'll see a word like shield, for example, and, and immediately they'll, that will stimulate their thoughts about all the other places in the Bible where, the, where it talks about shields, which is a lot. Um, and so, so you get a sort of mini, mini Bible, uh, you know, expounded out of, uh, uh, you know, smaller texts. That's true. Is there, in your study of the armor of God, Ephesians 6, is there one overriding theme that most blessed you? That there is, was there a takeaway for you? That go when I when I'm looking at the the, the the completeness of these verses here, this is where my heart goes. Yeah, and it, and it connects exactly with what we've been talking about, and that's the fact that the the armor that Paul is describing is not Roman legions legionnaires armor. Okay, yeah. this is Old Testament armor, uh, and it's the armor that God is wearing in the Old Testament, not us. Oh, wow. Um, that changes everything, So we it? often read, yeah, we often read the armor as if it's an instructions for us to be prepared, which mm-hmm. there's a sense in which it is. Um, but we miss the fact that what Paul is doing here is he's quoting very often Old Testament passages. You know, the helmet of salvation comes from the book of Isaiah. Uh, the feet shod with the, with the, 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 the uh, sandals of peace, that's, that's Isaiah as well. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so often it is, yeah, it is God taking up this armor in order to win the victory on behalf of his people. Uh, and, and again, it, it revolutionizes our perspective on the armor of God if we recognize that it's, first of all, God's armor that Christ has worn in our place, uh, that, that he then invites us to take up uh, to defend us against the devil. But it's, first of all, his battle that he's won uh, for us. So I really explore the roots of uh, the Old Testament roots of each of the pieces of the armor and demonstrate that Paul is drawing all of them from that Old Testament background. Wow. That's, that, that really, I do believe it could be a life-changing message to, to see it's God's, you know, put on the, you know, when, when you think of it in the phraseology of putting on the armor of God, it, it, it feels like you're taking his armor and putting it on. But it's 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 his right. it's his armor. It's his first. Yeah, we're not saying to God, stand aside. I've got this. Right. At least I hope we're not saying that. No. Because that's absolutely not what what it's intended for. If if you're you know the walls of the enemy coming against you, would you rather stand and fight him yourself, or would you rather have Christ in his complete armor? Right. Uh, that's that's profound. I love that. That's that's very rich. Yeah, and that's why prayer is is the the kind of final component which binds all of the, the, the individual pieces of armor together. You know, it's this dependence upon God that is, you know, as, as critical to all of the other uh, components of the armor as electricity is to a jet fighter. You know, 
if you don't if if you don't have have the batteries running, then nothing's <laughs> going to work. Yeah. It doesn't matter how high tech your missile is, you're not going to get it off. Yeah. Um, and so prayer is 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 the it's not a component. It's not a part of the armor. Uh, it's it's the the the, uh, the the glue, as it were, that holds it all together yeah. uh, and connects us with 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 God. That's right. That's right. I, the last time I did a little bit of looking into Ephesians six, there on the armor of God, a new th- you know how some you read scripture again and something new pops up that you've never really paid as much attention to before, and the word I, I realized I underlined it and it's mentioned six times in that passage about the armor and it's the word against. Mm. And I just thought that's, there's probably something timely for that in our culture because, you know, I hear a lot in ministry and, and rightly so, it's probably not a bad thing to say, you know, we're called to shine a light, not curse the darkness. Right. Or we as the church need to show more what we're for than what we're against. But there, there you know, when I was reading Ephesians 6, I, it, it's telling me there's a time and place where we need to be have a backbone and say boldly, we are against. Right. We're against abortion. You know, we're we're against marriage yeah. being defined in an improper way. Um, and I and I, and I never really connected that the armor has something for us to to stand against as well. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, Paul Paul doesn't say you know some of you are going to be Christian soldiers and so you need the armor, and some of you are going to be Christian civilians so you don't need it. <laughs> right. You know, the, the choice is, are you going to be a prepared Christian soldier or are you going to be an unprepared Christian soldier? Uh, and and there's only one right answer to that. Um, we're involved in a battle. Yeah. Uh, we have a powerful adversary to our souls. And and if we miss that, and I think you're right, I think sometimes we, we do miss that uh, as Christians, uh, then we are going to be unprepared. Oh. Um, yeah, armor is, is hot. It's uncomfortable. Um and uh, it, it's a pain in the neck. And so if you don't think that you're engaged in battle, if you think you're safely well behind the lines, you're going to take your helmet off and, you know, put the Kevlar down next to you. But if, if you know that at any moment the, the bullets could fly, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how uncomfortable it is, that stuff's staying on. Because that's right. you never know when you're going to need it. Wow. Well, that's, that's so good. Well, I would highly recommend... Uh, your, your books, uh, and we'll put a link to uh, the various books that we're talking about today on our on our podcast notes here. Uh, but highly recommend you read those about the armor of God. And uh, is the book the title of the book about the Old Testament? Is it called Christ in the Old Testament? Yeah, it's called Is Jesus in the Old Testament? Is Jesus in the Old Testament? Great title. Yeah, good. Well, we'll we'll do that. Well, thank you so much, Professor, for uh, taking the time to be with us today and breaking this down in such a way that uh, uh, whether you're a a seminary student or a layperson in the pew that we can grasp that and be uh, what you said today is extremely encouraging and building up our face so I want to ta- thank you for taking the time to be with us today really really are very grateful thank you very much it's been fun to be here each week this podcast reaches thousands of listeners This critical work is made possible by the generous contributions of individuals like you who believe in World Challenge's mission. Thank you for listening and supporting World Challenge, transforming lives through the message and mission of Jesus Christ.